You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Liam here, and welcome to another episode of East Bay Yesterday. For the next few episodes, I'm going to be doing something a little different. I am bringing in a co-host, and I'll explain why I'm doing that in a minute. But first, Mr. Peters, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your connection to the Hoover Foster neighborhood where we're sitting in your backyard right now. Awesome. Well, my name is David Peters. Um, I am a third generation West Oakland resident. In fact, live next door to the house that I was born in. My grandfather and his brother-in-law left Houston, Texas in 1942. My grandfather had graduated top of his class in welding class, so the story goes, Uh, but then quickly found out there was no work for black welders in Houston, Texas. So him and his brother-in-law, they married so sisters, of course, my grandmother and her sister, um, jumped in the Model T bound for Portland, Oregon in 1942. Well, they ran out of gas rationing coupons in Oakland, and my family's been in here in Oakland ever since then. Eventually, my grandfather brought his family out after a year or so. Um, his brother-in-law did the same, and then more of the family came out. And so you've been in this neighborhood for your whole life. Can you tell me a little bit about Well, I guess this is sort of the announcement that we're making is that uh, we're working on a walking tour together. And it's not just you and me. It's a whole whole group of folks. But I think really the impetus, the catalyst for this walking tour really came from you. So why did you want to do a historical walking tour of the Hoover Foster neighborhood? Yeah. Okay. So just to be, you know, just to be clear, I didn't I didn't live here my whole life. I have certainly lived other places around, you know, Oakland, South Berkeley and then Central Coast, but have always been connected here. I've always had family living you know, living here. And so this tour, uh, there were a couple inspirations around this tour. One was just from the family history, the stories I heard growing up, just listen to the stories of the old folk, um, the folks that live in this block, the other black Southern migrants uh, that my grandparents were was their you know, cohort that they came here with. Understanding this neighborhood was really a transit point for all kinds of peoples across decades that I think is underheard, underknown, and underappreciated. Um, and then there are some important, well-known um, historical figures. And so there's the history, there is the art that's here, that's was one of the main motivating factors, like, oh, wow, there's all these super cool murals. And I think a lot of people are aware, but no one knows who the artists are. Right. It's not if you, you, you know, you kind of know if you're here, but it's not well known. And so that cultural work that they do, I think it's undervalued, underappreciated. It should be lifted up. And when I put the history and that art together, it's foundationally to me, it's about the culture. Mm-hmm. This is a neighborhood that was really I grew up in uh, a black southern migrant culture. And so I would say, you know, up to about 1980, this might have been the further furthest west outpost of the deep south wow yeah and so for people who don't know exactly what the borders of the hoover foster neighborhood are where how would you describe where in oakland we're located roughly well you know we're so hoover foster is bounded by a triangle so you got 580 on the north and then 24 980 comes through and makes a southern boundary until it 
um, intersect with San Pablo Avenue. And so you got a triangle there that's Hoover. That I can think of as the Hoover Foster neighborhood. Yeah, so it's kind of like in between West Oakland and North Oakland, basically. <laughs> um, and I know you want one of the main themes of this tour, this whole project really, to be about the concept of black liberation. Tell me about that. Like, why did you feel like that was something you really wanted to focus on? And, and why does it why does that concept have such a strong connection with this place here? So, you know, in the, in the summer 2020, you know, in the in the wake of George Floyd's murder um, and several others simultaneously, you know, maybe it was a pandemic. Everybody was locked up. But all of a sudden there was more and greater attention to things that had always been occurring. Um, and then there was kind of an outpouring of support globally from people of all races, from institutions and foundations, uh, if suddenly it became uh, palatable and popular to talk about black liberation. And so this neighborhood, in particular, when I was growing up here in the late 60s, 69, 70, I can think of a moment sitting in my grandfather's pickup truck, James Brown on the radio singing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. You know, the Panthers were talking about Free Huey, it was black is beautiful and, you know, power, power. And so for me, I would contend and say that was the best time, this was the best time and place to grow up young and black in America and to come of consciousness at any time. And it's that ethos, that spirit that I think is animates a lot of the folks in this neighborhood that were here then, um, and that provides kind of this hook um, to be able to organize how I think about a lot in the world. And then you think about, you know, kind of the people that have transited this neighborhood. And so we got Delilah Beasley, who was the first black female columnist in the United States, newspaper columnist in the United States, who wrote in the Oakland Tribune and who put together a book, um, you know, California's Negro Trailblazers, because in the 19-teens, being conscious of that, losing that history. Then you get C.L. Dunham's getting off the train from Georgia, I mean from Texas, about 1920, and then his huge span of work from sleeping car porters through um, the strikes in the 40s and union and labor organizing through fair housing at the state of California in the 50s, and he lived up the block. And so while lots of people are more familiar with his nephew, Ron, uh, when you think about, you know, C.L. Dunham's in his central place, and not only probably you know, powering the West Coast civil rights movement, but then carrying that activism and that militancy and that thought, you know, all the way up into the 60s when he was active, you know, and beyond to that activism that we see today, you know, I think it's a story while we honor all the peoples that came through here and that will come here and will find a place here. For me, I don't think this story cannot, this story cannot be told without centering a black liberative thought. And I think that is certainly the focus that resonates with me, that I think is helpful for providing a framework for kind of where we are today. And that frankly, I think a lot of people come to Oakland in search of. And so mm. to be able to kind of share an actual, you know, history of not only, you know, Panthers, that's just one part of what happened in this neighborhood, but a long continuum of all sorts of peoples who added to that cultural mix and stew is motivating for me. And just to celebrate, celebrate these corners, man. I walk around these streets um, and have this connection to it um, that's palpable to me. And I look at, you know, I look at trash in the streets and, you know, opportunity where people are, are in, some people are in misery and our society is not, you know, taken care of. And frankly, you know, watching the San Pablo corridor kind of decline with deindustrialization and all the changes in the neighborhood. And, you know, some people come over here like, man, this is ugly and scary. You know, for me, it carries so much beauty and memory and power 
um, both from the folks who are here now that that I want to share um, these stories with because I generally think most people get a kick out of them. Well, that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks and months. And, you know, I've got to admit, I wasn't planning on doing a multi-part podcast miniseries about, you know, the people and the culture connected to this neighborhood at the beginning of the year. But your enthusiasm about this project got me infected. And the more I started digging into the local history here, the more I realized how many pivotal moments of not only Oakland and East Bay history are centered in this space, but I mean, really things that influenced uh, the entire country, really the entire world even. And so I'm so excited for this project to unfold in the, in the coming months. But let's get started with something kind of something kind of fun, something I know you like to talk about. And uh, I'm referring, of course, to barbecue, barbecue food. I feel like you know how it is when you want to get people to come to an event and first you put out the good food and they smell it and they kind of gather around and then you can kind of get into some some stuff that's like a little bit weightier, a little more serious. So not to say that barbecue isn't serious. I know some people take take cooking meat over over the open flame very seriously, uh, including myself, actually. But uh, what do you think about starting with Flint's Flint's barbecue? Because uh, based on your recommendation, I interviewed Crystal and Lynette Martin last week, whose grandfather, Willie Flintroy, started Flint's back in East Oakland, actually, uh, around 1968. But her, their family started one of the outposts of Flint's Barbecue right here on San Pablo, just around the corner from where we're at right now. And uh, before we get into a little segment about Flint's history, why don't you tell me what you remember about Flint's growing up because you used to eat there uh, pretty frequently, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it was round, you know, like I said, it was around the corner, open around the corner when I was a kid and, you know, ate there all through the years until they eventually ended up closing, you know, all the locations. Um, there's a couple of things that I remember clearly about Flint. One is you go in there and they're whacking ribs. Whack, 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 whack. So there was always that sound uh, of the cleaver hitting the board, you know, while you're waiting in line to, to go through that line. And then there was, you know, Flint's so got really popular, and um, you had to do uh, cook a lot of ribs, and so those ribs would be in there cooking, and, and after a while, you become a kind of a connoisseur. You know when to when to go and how to get it, and so you know the the I like the short end of the rib. I think the short end is juicier and tenderer and meatier, but I mean, kind of everybody likes that, and so in, in order to be able to get those. Um, you couldn't just ask them for the short end. Everybody asked for the short end. So I, I came up with an idea. I go in there and tell them, hey, uh, you know, my granny, she's only, only lost, you know, she's lost a few teeth. Um, can I get that short end? You know, it's tender for she could chew on it. And that worked beautiful for a while until they kind of figured out that, yeah, that probably wasn't for my granny. All the ribs I was coming in there ordering. <laughs> like, why is your granny <laughs> eating ribs four times a week? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that's getting people's mouths watering. Uh, let's jump into a little bit of Flint's history right now. First, you're going to hear from Lynette Martin and then Crystal, and then we'll come back and uh, move on to the next segment. All right, here we go. My grandfather loved I don't, I, I guess maybe he like barbecued a lot, but like for family, nothing where we had a business. But he just decided, you know, when they came out here, especially with blacks, you know, they try and think of something that they can make money, you know, where they can survive. He decided on the barbecue joint. You know, everybody barbecued. Uh, a lot of the blacks was moving from the south to up here. So he had a nice recipe, see. So. That's what he and Freeman, Uncle Freeman, wanted to do, see if they can, you know, make money. We have been living down here in West Oakland since 1974. So I basically, my whole life, lived down here in West Oakland. 
We attended all the schools, including McClymouth. I graduated from McClymouth. So I did not live far from Flint on San Pablo. In fact, McClymouth is like a, two blocks away. So what I would do is after school, I would walk over to Flint and work. I did everything. I did. I was a cashier. Actually, no one had like a particular job. So in the mornings, I would season the meat, the chicken and the beef and make the potato salad. The only person who did the sauce was my uncle. Nobody knew the recipe. So Uncle Neil made the sauce and then his son, Melvin, he was like the manager or what have you. They were the only two that made the sauce. Everything, oh, and the links, because our links were homemade. They made that. But then we, all your employees, we had to do everything else. Back then, they had a very, we had a very simple menu. The only thing Flint sold was ribs, pork ribs, beef ribs, homemade links, chicken, and potato salad, and two pieces of Roman bread. That's all you need. And we used to have people say, put some sauce on the potato salad. Put a little sauce on the potato. And they were happy. And and we, I don't know how we got away for years serving all that food on a weak paper plate. Your sauce was all in the bag by the time you opened it up. But my uncles and them never would change that. So I don't know how we did that. <laughs> My mother, she worked at Flint's also. She worked at the one in East Oakland with our step-grandmother. When she would come home, the whole house would just smell like barbecue. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work, really a lot of hard work. But when I think back, I miss those days. You met colorful people, you know. It was just, I don't know, it was fun. <laughs> To be honest, on San Pablo, you know, you always had a lot of people trying to sell stuff. So I remember pimps and prostitutes. <laughs> they would come in and get their barbecue. You had a lot of boosters, and I got me a lot of things. I got, you know, I, I almost, I almost <laughs> furnished my um, my dorm room with the stuff I bought. <laughs> They would come in with albums. They would come in lots of jewelry. If you wanted jewelry, you know, they came in with everything. Music. Back then, it was 8-track tapes. <laughs> oh, TVs. That's right. We got a couple of TVs. Uh, stereo. I'm telling you, that was some good time. It was fun. <laughs> so Uncle Freeman passed away, and so it was just Uncle Neil and Melvin, and then they all started passing away. They all passed away the mid-80s. So it definitely wasn't the same. And then after that, it was only open a few more years, and then Flint ended up closing. I'll say we taught Miss Crystal. <laughs> so she's the one who decided and wanted to uh, start Flint back up. So between myself and my sister Martha, we kind of trained her with the cooking and stuff like that and and she decided Flint she'd been asking us for years and I always said no 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 but then the last time when she got said yeah because people miss Flint and you see people always you know reminiscing about Flint
the only memory I actually have of Flint's when it was open back in the day was running around and playing in that back storage room and helping my mother. And so just to just see it sitting there and knowing that that was once our family's business, I used to ask my mom again, like, well, why can't we just go back or why can't we, you know, reopen it? And she would just say, no, baby, that's a lot of work. So with me being younger and then a teenager, like I said, I would revisit it every couple of years. The answer was just always no. So as an adult, especially now with social media and seeing how many people will post Flint. And so I told them again, I said, you guys need to see this. I said, people really miss Flint. I said, why can't we just bring it back? And so luckily, you know, to my surprise this time, Lynette agreed. And so she has helped me to get it uh, going. Uh, but basically, it's just knowing what our legacy was and it just being painful to see it pretty much abandoned. Back in the day, everybody looked out for each other. We really did. And everybody knew each everybody. Knew everybody. So with that being said, I would say that we all were just like a big family. That was just a little overview of Flint's Barbecue, one of the stops that uh, we're going to be having on this walking tour of the Hoover Foster area that we're working on right now. And there's been actually some news about Flint's recently, right, Dave? They're trying to come back. Isn't there like a GoFundMe or something like that that they launched? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, Crystal, you know, Willie Flint Laurie's granddaughter has been popping up Flint's locations. And so I had been dying to try it. You know, when you hear, when you hear the name, it's something when you hear, we talk about Flint's, like all kinds of people have fond memories of it. And so she started to pop up. Of course, I wanted some barbecue and went out, um, got to barbecue, got a chance to meet her and talk to her. So they are actually trying to, you know, get enough equipment to move back into the location on San Pablo Avenue. And so they've got to go fund me going. Um, you know, the, the idea of being able to bring back the Flint's family in that historic location in San Pablo is just so super duper exciting. It's you know? amazing. And that yeah. building's been empty since they left it, like in the 80s, right? It's just mm -hmm. been sitting there. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's uh, give a shout out to Flint's. Check out the GoFundMe. Hopefully we'll be smelling that delicious food cooking in the neighborhood once again pretty soon. For the next segment... I mean, this is really one of the most important leaders, one of the matriarchs of this neighborhood who we're going to be talking to next, a woman by the name of Alternier Cook, who you introduced me to. And I think she was friends with what, your mom or your grandma, Alternier? Can you tell people a little bit about her? Uh, Alternier and my mom were contemporaries. Okay. Um, I think she's probably, I think she's actually in my uncle's class at, at McClyman's, um, you know, late 50s. Uh, you know, Ms. Cook is, as you say, a matriarch and a treasure of this neighborhood, a real culture bearer and historian and just a connector of all kinds of folks. When my wife and I moved back here three years ago, uh, my mom came by and was like, hey, I hear my friend Altanier is trying to do something around here. I think something about a library. You go see her and help her. And so I went and signed up, and I've been helping Ms. Cook ever since to, um, as on the board of the Friends of the Hoover Durant Public Library, which is our effort to bring the library back to this neighborhood that we'd had from about 1889 to 1981. Um, and, but Ms. Cook is, once you begin to talk to her, 
we find out that her family has been in California and in Oakland for a long time, a lot longer than my family that came during the war, during the Great Migration. Her family had been here decades earlier. And so her dad was a labor organizer. You know, he, he the uh, YMCA over here in the corner was named after him. She's done, been featured in numerous uh, documentaries about this neighborhood and just talks about a time um, growing up around here in the 50s when this, there was so much pride and culture um, in the neighborhood and amongst the people. Uh, it's just really inspiring um, to hear her talk. Well, we're about to hear her talk right now in her own words. So before we jump into Altanir, I just want to add that this walking tour that we're working on is really an outgrowth of the efforts of the Friends of Hoover Durant Public Library. Altanir and, and some of her friends, uh, the other people on the board started this library project a couple years ago and it's been building momentum. And I think that this, you know, what we're working on right now, this whole group of folks who are doing this walking tour with us, uh, we've all been inspired by Altanir and the Friends of Hoover Durant Public Library. and. I think when people check out this walking tour and see the locations, they're going to see uh, why she, why Alternier feels so strongly about this neighborhood and really bringing back some things that have been lost, like this library. So let's hear from Alternier, and then uh, we'll we'll be back in a minute. I was born in 1940. I grew up in West Oakland, and then we moved to Sacramento for a while, and then we eventually moved up here to 33rd between Market and West. We moved into this house here in 1950, and I remember there was we were the third black family to move on this block. And the woman who owned this, the building isn't there now, but on the corner of 31st, and Martin Luther King, which was Grove Street, was a building. The last name of it was the Allen Building. And the woman who owned the building tried to circulate a petition to keep us from moving in here. When I would go downstairs, my mother would say to me, because, you know, I mean, me being precocious as I was, I'd roll out my eyes at her. My mother said, don't even look at, ignore her. I was sheltered from a lot of stuff. I didn't realize that, you know, the kind of reprisals and ramifications of my misbehavior could bring on my family. People who are racist would look for any excuse to... Any excuse. Any excuse. Can you tell me a little bit about what the neighborhood was like back then? What do you remember from from your childhood? Oh, I mean, it was wonderful. Where... Hoover School is placed now, that was houses. And those people had grown berries all in that backyard there. That was the backyard facing the, 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 the playground. And so we would go pick berries in the summertime. And it was a pretty diverse neighborhood. There were Asians, mm-hmm. Chinese and Japanese, and some Filipinos. Of course, there were Mexicans. Let's see. There were white folks. But, of course, when the, when the neighborhood started changing, of course, there was a lot of white flight. This was way before the freeways. This was in the 40s. This is after World War II. And, you know, guys were coming home, and they were opening up the suburbs, and so folks were, you know, they were getting out of here. Anyway, so, I mean, it was a mix. 
everybody played with everybody and everybody, you know, I mean, once you got old enough and if you had a a bicycle, the world was your oyster. <laughs> it was pretty safe back then? Oh, yeah, it was safe. Because if you moved anywhere, if you went anywhere, somebody knew somebody, knew somebody. And so your parents knew what was going on before you got home. <laughs> I don't care whether you were black, white, green, yellow, polka dot, whatever have you. We used to walk everywhere. It was nothing to walk downtown. That's what we did. Because on Sunday after church, you come home, change clothes, and go to the movies. We just walked everywhere. Did people know right away what an impact the freeways would have during the construction of them and, and that whole process? Because that must have taken years. Well, I think people had an idea because I know that many of us who had asthma, I had several bad asthma attacks during the construction of the freeway. Wow. And I mean, they, and, and it disrupted whole blocks, whole neighborhoods. I mean, you know, people you grew up with and the next time you never saw them. It's one guy I went to church with. And they took his house over on 36th Street, and I haven't seen him since. I don't think people were necessarily that happy about having to move. Well, you know what movement does. Well, you know, also, where to... where are you supposed to move? Because I know uh, yeah. back then a lot of the suburbs were racially segregated, and they wouldn't even exactly. let black people move in. So they moved, you know, Brookfield Village, some Brownie Park, uh, Parkchester Village. Uh, what's that up in Vallejo? At Crestview Heights. The freeway was a containment zone for this neighborhood. And it really did a disservice because it cut us off from everything. And this was one of those things where, you know, it was, the freeway was constructed to bring the people in from the burbs into San Francisco, you know, mm -hmm. and the people in the flatlands be damned. As long as they could get over to the Naval Air Station and to the post office, you know, because those were the jobs for the colored folks at the time. Uh, after World War II, you know, everything was fine. But, you know, I mean, this was a pretty idyllic, community until the dope was dropped down into this neighborhood irregardless of to the of the freeways people were able to thrive i'm serious when i say dope was dropped into this neighborhood because there was no other way they could dislodge these people out of here and i'm not talking out of school i think it's been fairly well documented that the government infiltrated certain neighborhoods with drugs, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So as a result, we have every pathology imaginable as a result of the drugs. When the dope took, took hold, you know people weren't thinking about a library. It was too busy trying to survive. In the next segment, you're about to hear Alternir Cook talking about the campaign to bring a library back to this neighborhood because there hasn't been one in Hoover Foster for decades. So she'll be covering the origins of the Friends of Hoover Durant Public Library and their first pop-up event, which happened back in 2017. 
The only reason I'm jumping in here is just to clarify something. In a minute, you'll be hearing Ms. Cook talk about getting support from a lodge. The lodge that she's referring to is the Prince Hall Masonic Lodge, but I'm not going to say anything else about that lodge right now because I'll be covering it in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. Okay, here we go. Back to Miss Alternier Cook. Let me frame this. Just like the freeway and some other things that have taken place in this community, all this stuff has taken place without notice to the community. There's a couple of things we're trying to do to get the community engaged. We're going to do some street corner libraries right over there on the corner of 30th Market and San Pablo. And it would be nice if the lodges would, you know, if one of the lodges would come and just be out there. Because you got a bunch of little old ladies out there on the corner of 30th and San Pablo. And the ladies of the evening are across the street at the furniture store. And then we got, the, the at the time, the motorcycle club and the homeless camp and everything else, okay? We have children and everybody else. We're trying to get children and everybody else. We need some men around. See, all of us old ladies, we, we you know, we, we, we're not trying to be these newfangled women. We knew we needed to have some men around to do the heavy work, and just to have a presence. We decided, we put the call out. What we do is we give away books and refreshments, and we collect books. And the guy who owns Golden Gate Lock and Key, of course, I've known him all my life too, he said, tell people to drop their books off here, and then you all pick them up. Done. So we got some... That was our first business to partner with us. And so we go collect the books, and then every four or five Saturdays, we have a street corner library when the weather's good, and people and their families come by, and they, and they come and get books. And so then the library started bringing the books. So they decided, you know what? This is a good way to get people signed up for library cards. Mm. So Manny Hernandez brings the bicycle over there and brings all the library stuff and can tell people all about the Oakland Public Library. And you'd be surprised the amount of money we collect. Let me give you a little uh-huh. story. Sure, there was a, please. There was a hooker across the street at the furniture store. <laughs> and she was turning the trick. And so I knew she was over there. I saw her. You know, we all saw her. But, you know, I mean, hey, you know, that's life. Yeah. So she went off and turned the trick and came back, and she was standing over there looking. Then she came across the street. And she said, I what are you all doing? She said, I, we said, we, we're trying to get our library back, and we giving away books. She said, can I have a book? I said, you can have anything you want. You know she gave us $20? Did she take a book? Yeah. She right. says, I like to read. And she says, here. And so somebody has to say, you take $20 on her car. I said, look, hey, she like to read just like anybody else. Hey, who am I? Who am I to judge her? But for the grace of God, there go I. 
one of the things that we're doing right now, part of the West Oakland Walk, the Black Liberation Walk, is to archive some of the experiences of the people who have lived, worshipped, worked, had recreation in this community. We're also, and, and we've, we're also trying to find out about the indigenous people who were in this area long before any of us. And so we want to honor those yeah. communities. Okay, so this is why, you know, everybody looks at me when I say, look, we need to find out about the Italians and the Portuguese and the Chinese and the Philippines because all these folks, and this has never been just a black neighborhood. It was a predominantly black neighborhood for a while. But in the grand scheme of things, not that long. One of the ways for particularly the African-American community to become liberated is to have access to information and have access to information on their terms, okay, and access to any information that they need, not just the African-American diaspora, but anybody else's diaspora, because otherwise you're living in a bubble and you see the mess we've had the last four years, okay, <laughs> because people are living in a bubble. A library is a destination. And then when we get to talking to pe people, even David and people who grew up around here, they talk about, and you know, and I talk about the time we spent in the library and how positive it is. One of the things that you have to understand about this neighborhood is this is where people invested their dreams and their desires for them and theirs. And I, and I mean, their families, their friends, there were churches, there was a certain amount of structure, uh, there was a lot of love. And this was a neighborhood where people cared about each other and wanted the best for each other. And didn't mind working toward that goal. Okay, so that was uh, my interview with Alternir Cook. I wouldn't be surprised if we're hearing a little bit more from Alternir in uh, upcoming episodes. I don't think that's, that's the last we've heard from Miss Cook in this mini-series. So people who are listening closely probably realize we're talking about the uh, Hoover Foster walking tour, but then the Hoover Durant Public Library. So what's the you know difference between these two terms? Why are we saying Hoover Foster and Hoover Durant? Yeah, the uh, those are schools in this neighborhood. Um, Durant School, which I attended, uh, was an elementary school here on West Street that I think dates back to the 19-teens or 20s. Um, Durant was... Um, torn down, I think because of seismic safety issues, and replaced with Marcus Foster Middle School. Jeez, it might have been in the 80s, uh, which has subsequently been torn down and replaced with the Central Kitchen. And so I've also heard this neighborhood referred to as the historic uh, Hoover neighborhood, uh, which is another school here. But it is those schools um, that cause that difference in that name. And for folks like myself and, and Altenaire, who's been here even longer, um, that Durant name has more of a historical 
truth into it and foster. I think some people are probably more familiar with an even different name that this neighborhood is often given, which is Ghost Town. So Ghost Town, what do you know about where that name came from? Uh, how do you feel about it? You know, Ghost Town. I know people have, there's, there's a lot of kind of mixed, mixed emotions when it comes to the neighborhood being called that. Yeah, thanks, thanks for asking me this question. Um, this neighborhood has been the transit point. It's interesting, you know. It was, is it, it's now West Oakland, you know, before it was North Oakland. I mean, sometime in between it was neither. And similar to the, you know, that kind of changing geographic you know, label, um, so is Ghost Town coming come and gone. When I was growing up here in the 70s, the Ghost Town name hadn't been invented yet. So it certainly was not Ghost Town back then. I think I first heard it referred to as Ghost Town probably in the 80s. And it was definitely well known exactly what those boundaries, what those boundaries were in the 90s, which are those of Hoover Foster. Um, there's lots of stories about how it came to be named Ghost Town. And, and I don't know that any of the ones I've read uh, ring true to me. And so what I would say, and I, I can claim not being, you know, no, no authorship and not being there was named, uh, but to me, it was ghost town because during the crack era, this was, I think we got the highest murder rate in the city. And there was a group here known as the Ghost Town Boys. They took their name after that. And it was, it was not nice. Um, and so those, that name, Ghost Town, uh, for folks like me, um, it has a lot of bad memories. You know, it's associated with some times around here that were not good. And so as I tell people, Ghost Town no more. <laughs> it is not hip and it's not cool. Um, you get no street cred for, for using that name. It has a certain um, designation. I think it belongs to a certain era. And let us leave it there. All right. All right. Well, the last story, the last segment that we're going to be running today on this episode is going to be an interview with Annette Miller, who uh, lives just a couple blocks away from here. And I know you wanted me to talk to Annette because I feel like she kind of represents the struggle that a lot of people in this area have gone through, but also the persistence in staying here. We're going to hear in her story about some challenges she faced in holding on to her place and, and what happened uh, when she was threatened with displacement. But before we jump into that, is there anything you want to say about Annette Miller? What should people know about her before they hear her tell her family story and her life history in her own words? Yeah, this, this is one of the stories I wanted to tell on this tour that people don't know about. This is why this is a black liberation tour. I read about Annette's story in the paper when we were living on the Central Coast. And I was like, I need to meet this woman. And so we moved home. I immediately set about trying to find Annette. And Annette is a leader in this neighborhood. You know, she chairs our resident action council. She, she runs National Night Out. Uh, she helps to coordinate uh, businesses and business activity here, trying to, you know, empower not only existing business owners, but black folks. And that story to me is a story of what Hoover neighborhood is about. We don't quit. We don't give up. And we keep fighting against whatever powers that be for our rights to community control. Let's hear from Annette Miller. My grandmother name came from Georgia and my grandfather came from Louisiana and they kind of met together traveling this way towards California. They ended up in Indio, California and then they moved to Oakland. My grandfather was a type of man that grew a garden, had rabbits, had chickens, roosters and all that all in his backyard. 
when he came down here, he met a guy that lived down the street named Mr. Scott. And Mr. Scott was an African-American man that owned practically majority of the houses on the block. He ended up selling to uh, my grandfather. I think it was maybe like about $60,000 that he bought it. So we've been here. All my aunties and uncles and my mom them was raised here. My grandfather, when we were out here, if we were picking fruit or if we were throwing seeds to the, the chickens or the roosters, he used to be out here talking to us like, you should always want to have something in your life. You should always want to have something that, that you value as yours. I grew up here until I was 12. My mom worked at Finnish Barbecue. My grandmother and them owned different properties in Oakland. So my grandma and them owned a house on 32nd and um, Filbert, literally a block away from Flint's Barbecue. So my mom moved into Acorns. She got her own place in the Acorns, but we still stayed with my grandparents. You know, back in the days, your grandparents used to raise you up while your mom went to work, especially if you had uh, younger parents, because my, my mom had me at the age of 17. So it's kind of like we all like grew up together as you know young parents and stuff, but my grandma raised us all up. Raising up, it used to be a neighbor or two that cared about your kids and cared about you, your community, seen anything going on, they what they were reflecting. Like, hey, uh, Ned, get down off that tree, or, or uh, Jim, stop playing on that car, or you're gonna break that window, I'm gonna tell your grandmama, you know, some things like that. We don't have that sense of community now because there's been a lot of, um, I hate to say it, a lot of gentrification going on in the last five years. A lot of folks that lived here originally have moved out. It's only um, four original owners that's on this block that I know that still own their house when I was a little kid. So most of the people have moved out and it's new people. We all are different cultures. We all have different cultures and different types of lives. But me as a community member, in the apartments that are, or the houses that are rented out right now, I at least know one person in each house. And this Christmas was very, uh, very nice. Four neighbors Christmas morning brought us stuff that they baked in their house, you know what I mean? And that, that was, I mean, you know, to me that kind of felt hella cool to know that everybody likes you or something or like you know they appreciate you and your family being in the community and stuff so i watch out for things they watch out for things i think it happened like uh maybe 2005 around 2005 2006 there was a lot of people like older people who stayed here who owned their property ended up passing away had a relative the daughter the son maybe they fought over who should own what or what and it ended up being a sale or uh, lost and even us if you see the memorial in front that you see even us you know back to back to back uh relative passed away you know our relatives came here and wanted something and they 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 ended up buying something in West Oakland and we look at the the shift of the way the world went like after World War II and cuz that's when most of the African Americans settled in here 
right after the war. And this was the only land that, that people would sell to them in West Oakland. They figured like this was never gonna be anything, so let's just settle out for it, you know. My relatives are army people. So the benefit of being a, a VA veteran is a lot of benefits of a lot of people settling in, in our community who owned African, African-Americans who was able to buy a house once they got out of the army, they came and they came here. Um, they couldn't find nothing nowhere else. Nobody didn't want to let them buy in Montclair or Piedmont or none of these other places. So they settled in West Oakland. It was Dorcher's Bank, and that's who owned the mortgage. And they told us we didn't have no rights because all the people had passed away. I said, nah, you know, you're sending this guy here, this guy coming here with all these strange things, you know, standing outside taking pictures. And I'm, you know, I kind of like was feeling threatening. But from learning, from going to different organizations and doing different things, they taught me certain things about what to do if this situation came. So by talking to the Mark Werber from the Army and then talking to community members from ACE, they were the one who came and then actually just physically just said, hey, Annette, you don't have to leave. We'll help you save your house. Don't leave. Continue to pay and whatever. So in 2015, they stopped accepting the mortgage payment. So in 2015, they stopped accepting the mortgage payment because the mortgage payment wasn't coming from my uncle who name was on the mortgage. So they felt that they didn't have to tie into that because the payment wasn't coming from him because he passed away. So this is when they started saying, well, you know, you guys gonna have to move and we're we'll, 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 gonna pay for you to move. Say, so you ain't gonna pay nothing. Cause what I continued to do was continue to pay the insurance and the taxes. So we did one big action here, uh, like in uh, October of 2015, cause this is when they, so we did it like a night action. It was night, we had the lights up. We, we put this banner on the wall, up, up on the top of the house, saying we not uh, leaving. We against foreclosures. You know, big banks can't be trying to take little people's home. And um, Anthony found two numbers in Dorches Bank, some of the highest people in Dorches Bank. He gave us those numbers, he put it on this, we, we made like a little flyer. So on Martin Luther King's birthday in 2016, we went to McDonald's because two people in McDonald's had got fired because they were organizing with Ace. On Martin Luther King's birthday, we went there at nine. About time 11 came, we had three barbecue pits. We had blocked off the driveway we just shut down business all the way to six o'clock. The piece of paper, we passed it out to everybody. I got up there on the mic and I spoke and said, you know, this bank is trying to take my grandmother's house. Woody, woody, woody. But we gave out that number, the two numbers that we had out to like, it's like 500 people out there because we actually had got the news people out there and everything. So those 500 people ended up calling that number and then whoever else chimed in off of the Facebook pages, you know, cause I had a few friends put it on live and everything. Tuesday morning, Deutsche Bank called me and said, you know what, I don't know where you got those numbers from and I don't know how did you get in contact with all those people, but you know what? 
they decided to sell you back your house for the amount of money that was already took out on the loan no more no nothing i say send it to me in an email and writing and i'll send it over to the va loan and the va loan people and they'll take care of the rest and from then and there we was able to save the house so In 2016, even though I was able to save this house, this property and everything, I lost my youngest son to gun violence in Oakland. It was a double homicide on 39th and MLK. And then in 2020, uh, June 1st, another one of my sons got shot and that actually ha happens to be my birthday. So it's been a lot of tragedy going on in our community, our lives, just knowing just how it's rough for an African-American young man to live in Oakland because you have to play a part in the, the gangs or you have to play a part of showing toughness in your community because you don't want to be shown as weak. So I've been working with the Department of Violent Prevention to uproot some of those things. Like I've been getting grants to throw block parties and I have been paying uh, I paid like eight youths over the whole 2020 to, you know, do work with census, to do work with the block parties that I was saying, um, to give away gifts, to do flyer and organize, to get them to feel like if somebody is out there showing you that they care, and then you might do a little better to not be involved in um, the gun violence or being traumatized about what's going on in your community because a lot of this affect the young kids. Like my son was only 19, the one who got killed, and he got killed with his best friend. That's a lot of trauma to a lot of kids, you know, because I didn't know until the next day that somebody uh, called and told somebody at McClymus High School, and the whole school walked out. I didn't know it that that the whole school walked out of school because of these two kids getting murdered. They had just graduated the year before, so a lot of those same students knew my son and his best friend. Violence has, sometimes I don't even understand because, you know, like you listen to the news and say, man, you don't never want to go live in Oakland. They be like, what, they third on the list for crime. Like, wait a minute, we only got 460,000 people. I tell people right now, the change will be that you have to find some solution of where the, the root of the problem is starting. We have to do more education in, in the lower grades, first, second, third grade. We got to be educating our young black and brown kids that you don't have to be scared of nothing, that somebody's out there that loves you. Um, you don't always got, you don't have to pick up a gun to show that you hurting. You could talk to this person and tell them you're upset about what they've done instead of going and picking up a gun and then shooting this person because you didn't like because he told you your shoes look ugly today or I don't know. It's just so much going on that a lot of older African-American people did move out, let their property be rented property. They're going to say, hey, you know. I don't even want to be bothered with Oakland no more anyway. I live way in Stockton, Tracy, Merced, you know what I mean? Brentwood, Antioch, you know, even Sacramento. A lot of folks move back to Sacramento, you know, it's cheaper, it's reasonable, you got more land, you know.
back in the days in the 80s, you know, we had arcade places. We had the racing car track in the east. You took all the skating rings and stuff away because, you know, a lot of us used to skate a lot. Nobody wants to hold a business or have anything going on if somebody kills somebody outside in front of their building. That's, I, I mean, just thinking back to, like, why these businesses went out of business that we had. Most of the buildings you see that might be vacant or whatever, just remember that it was somebody who lived there that was probably African-American and who loved their place. But unfortunately, you know, due to the times and the circumstances, they wasn't able to hold on to them. But um, we want to stay here. We don't want to be moved out. We don't want to be pushed out. We don't want to be known as the people who gave up. And I figured in my lifetime, if I don't want to do nothing else, I always got this place to live in because it's always been a family house. It's always been a family house. And I don't see going nowhere else. Nothing is like Oakland, California. Nothing is like home. All right, Dave, that was a Nat Miller story. And uh, what do you think? Are you down to come back and host a couple more episodes with me over the next couple weeks? Uh, I think we've got a lot to uh, cover in this miniseries, and I'd love to have you back. I would love to do so. You know how much pride and passion I have for this neighborhood and its people and its stories and its culture. Excited to come back and do that some more with you. Well, I'm excited too because we <laughs> there's so much that we haven't even talked about yet. Where we're sitting in your backyard, we're looking at a mural of historic black residents from this neighborhood, and I don't even want to spoil it yet, so we're not going to talk about it now, but that's just to get the listeners excited to know that there's a lot more coming in uh, the months ahead of us. Stories of C.L. Dallums, the California Hotel, artists, musicians, athletes, you name it. And one thing that I'll also say is if you're out there listening and you have stories that you want to contribute to this podcast, to the tour, the library, the Friends of Hoover Durant Public Library are trying to build like a neighborhood archive of stories. You can get in touch with me if you want, eastbayyesterday at Gmail, and I'll, you know, connect you to the library folks. And if you have a good story about like, for example, the California Hotel or something like that, I'm gathering stories to to share with the with the listeners of East Bay Yesterday. And uh, I mean, that's kind of what this project is all about, right, Dave? Like, it's not just about the destination of like creating this walking tour. It's kind of about connecting people and seeing what comes from, uh, I know the, the, the phrase building community gets used a lot, but I think that's really kind of what your, your vision is for this project, right? You know, that's, that's not only what I do, it's who I am. You know, I'm, I'm building community, I'm connecting people. <laughs> you know, I sit on my front porch all the time. I grew up in a, you know, a neighborhood of porch sitters and you wave and you speak to everybody that goes around. Um, and it is my mission um, to recreate that and, and transmit that Southern black microculture to the great extent I have, I can. I've got this mural of my family's uh, great migration story um, that ends up here to um, honor my grandparents and all the other folks and all the other stories that came through this neighborhood. This isn't just about rich people or famous people. This is around about the everyday people that have lived and worked here. Uh, and raise their families and make community connections with others. That's what we're about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been one of your hosts, Liam O'Donoghue. 
and my co-host today was Mr. David Peters. The biggest thanks this week goes out to the friends of Hoover Durant Public Library and Miss Alternir Cook, who's been connecting me with some of the folks that you'll be hearing from in future episodes of this mini-series. I'll be linking to the friends and posting updates about ways you can get involved with this tour at my website, eastbayyesterday.com. And yeah, this podcast is just a tiny part of a much bigger effort, so stay tuned for lots more details. Um, There are a bunch of people working to make this happen. You know, folks uh, doing logistics, getting funding, building the website. I'm not going to give everyone a personal shout out right now, but I just want to acknowledge y'all. You know who you are. Thank you. And as always, this episode would not have been possible without my Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to everyone who's been donating to keep this show alive. Also, Big ups to everyone who's been sharing East Bay Yesterday episodes on Twitter and Facebook or even just telling your friends about it or tagging me on Instagram, whatever. This show has zero marketing budget, so it really helps when you spread the word. Um, I appreciate it so much. Uh, People who are spreading the word about East Bay Yesterday, you are the best. Um, Music for this episode came from Anatech, Lobo Loco, and Justin Lee, and uh, that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.